Section 14 of The Philosophy of the Plan of Salvation by James Barr Walker. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Concerning the Manifestations of God in the Spiritual Dispensation, Part 2. 1. The testimony of Jesus that it was necessary man should feel the want in order to exercise the love. Jesus uniformly speaks of it as being necessary that previously to accepting him as Saviour, the soul should feel the need of salvation. He does not even invite the thoughtless sinner or the godless worldling, who has no sense of the evil or the guilt of sin, to come to him. Said Jesus, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The whole need not a physician, but they who are sick. Come unto me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. Blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Thus the points which have been shown to be necessary, from the constitution of things, in order to the soul's loving God, are presented in the same light by Jesus himself, and upon the principle which they involve he acted during his ministry. 2 the testimony of the scriptures that god did thus manifest himself as suffering and making self-denials for the spiritual good of men god was in christ says the apostle reconciling the world to himself that is god was in christ doing those things that would restore to himself the obedience and affection of every one that believed christ represents himself as a ransom for the soul as laying down his life for believers. He is represented as descending from an estate of the highest felicity, taking upon him the nature of man, and humbling himself even to the death of the cross, a death of the most excruciating torture, and thus bearing the sins of men in his own body on the tree, that through his death God might be just, and the justifier of every one that believeth in Jesus. It was thus, by a self-denial surpassing description, by a life of labor for human good, accomplished by constant personal sacrifices, and tending at every step towards the center of the vortex, he went on until, finally, life closed to a crisis by the passion in the garden, the rebuke and the buffet and the cruel mockery of the Jews and the Romans, and then, bearing his cross, faint with former agony of spirit, and his flesh quivering with recent scourging, he goes to Calvary, where the agonized sufferer for human sin cried, It is finished, and gave up the ghost. Such is the testimony of the scriptures, and it may be affirmed without hesitancy that it would be impossible for the human soul to exercise full faith in the testimony that it was a guilty and needy creature condemned by the holy law of a holy God, and that from this condition of spiritual guilt and danger Jesus Christ suffered and died to accomplish its ransom, we say a human being could not exercise full faith in these truths and not love the Saviour. 3. The atonement of Christ produces the necessary effect upon the human soul in restoring it to affectionate obedience, which neither philosophy, law, nor preceptive truth could accomplish. The wisdom of divine providence was conspicuous in the fact that previously to the introduction of Christianity, 
all the resources of human wisdom had been exhausted in efforts to confer upon man true knowledge and true happiness. Although most of the great names of antiquity were conspicuous rather for those properties which rendered them a terror and a scourge to mankind, and although society, among the ancients, in its best estate, was little better than semi-barbarism, yet there was a class in society during the Augustan and Periclean age, and even at some periods before that time, that was cultivated in mind and manners. From this class individuals at times arose who were truly great, men distinguished alike for the strength, compass, and discrimination of their intellect. In all the efforts of these men, with the exception of those who applied themselves exclusively to the study of physical phenomena, the great end sought was the means or secret of human happiness. All admitted that human nature, as they found it, was in an imperfect or depraved condition, and not in the enjoyment of its chief good, and the plans which they proposed, by which to obtain that happiness, of which they believed the soul susceptible, were as various and diverse from each other as can be imagined. No one of these plans ever accomplished in any degree the end desired, and no one of them was ever adapted to or embraced by the common people. The philosophers themselves, after wrangling for the honour of having discovered truth and making themselves miserable in the pursuit of happiness, died, and man was left unsatisfied and unhappy, philosophy having shed only sufficient light upon his mind to disclose more fully the guilty and wretched state of his heart. There are perhaps two exceptions to these remarks as applied to the great minds of antiquity, those are Socrates and his pupil Plato. These men, with a far penetrating insight into the constitutional wants of man, contemplating the disordered and unhappy condition of human nature, and inquiring for a remedy adequate to enlighten the mind, and give the heart a satisfying good, perceived that there was not in the resources of philosophy, nor within the compass of human means, any power that could reach the source of the difficulty, and rectify the evil of human nature, which consisted in a want of benevolent affection. Footnote. That Plato had some idea of the want, and none of what was necessary to supply it, may be seen in the fact that in order to make men love as brethren, which he saw to be necessary, he recommended a community of wives to the members of his ideal republic. End footnote. Inferring from the nature of man what would be necessary, and trusting in the goodness of the deity to grant the requisite aid, they expressed their belief that a divine teacher would come from heaven, who would restore truth and happiness to the human soul. Footnote. In Plato's dialogue upon the duties of religious worship, a passage occurs, the design of which appears to be, to show that man could not, of himself, learn either the nature of the gods, or the proper manner of worshipping them, unless an instructor should come from heaven. The following remarkable passage occurs between Socrates and Alcibiades. Socrates. To me it appears best to be patient. It is necessary to wait till you learn how to act towards the gods and towards men. Alcibiades. When, O Socrates, shall that time be? And who will instruct me? For most willingly would I see this person who he is. Socrates. 
he is one who cares for you but as homer represents minerva as taking away darkness from the eyes of diomedes that he might distinguish a god from a man so it is necessary that he should first take away the darkness from your mind and then bring near those things by which you shall know good and evil alcibiades let him take away the darkness or any other thing if he will for whoever this man is i am prepared to refuse none of the things which he commands if i be made better plato's alcibiades too it is strange that among philosophers of succeeding ages there has not been wisdom sufficient to discover from the constitutional necessities of the human spirit that demand for the instruction and aid of the messiah which socrates and plato discovered even in a comparatively dark age there are two insuperable difficulties which would forever hinder the restoration of mankind to truth and happiness from being accomplished by human means the first which has already been alluded to is that human instruction as such has no power to bind the conscience even if man were competent to discover all the truth necessary for a perfect rule of conduct yet that truth would have no reformatory power because men could never feel that truth was obligatory which proceeded from merely human sources it is an obvious principle of our nature that the conscience will not charge guilt on the soul for disobedience when the command proceeds from a fellow man who is not recognized as having the prerogative and the right to require submission and besides as men's minds are variously constituted and of various capacities there could be no agreement in such a case concerning the question what is truth as well might we expect two schoolboys to reform each other's manners in school without the aid of the teacher's authority as that men can reform their fellows without the sanction of that authority which will quicken and bind the conscience the human conscience was made to recognize and enforce the authority of god and unless there is belief in the divine obligation of truth conscience refuses to perform its office but the grand difficulty is this truth whether sanctioned by conscience or not has no power as has been shown to produce love in the heart the law may convict and guide the mind but it has no power to soften or to change the affections this was the precise thing necessary and this necessary end the wisdom of the world could not accomplish all the wisdom of all the philosophers in all ages could never cause the affections of the soul to rise to the holy blessed god to destroy selfish pride and produce humility to eradicate the evil passions and produce in the soul desires for the universal good and love for the universal parent was beyond the reach of earthly wisdom and power the wisdom of the world in their efforts to give truth and happiness to the human soul was foolishness with god and the wisdom of god christ crucified was foolishness with the philosophers in relation to the same subject footnote from an observation of one of the fathers it would seem that after the gospel had been preached among the greeks many of them perceived its adaptedness to accomplish the end for which they had sought in vain philosophy says clemens of alexandria led the greeks to christ as the law did the jews 
concluding paragraph of the apology of m minucius felix in defence of christianity a d two fifty to conclude the sum of our boasting is that we have got into possession of what the philosophers have been always in quest of and what with all their application they could never find why then so much ill-will stirring against us if divine truth is come to perfection in our time let us make a good use of the blessing let us govern our knowledge with discretion let superstition and impiety be no more and let true religion triumph in their stead End quote. End footnote. yet it was divine philosophy an adapted means and the only adequate means to accomplish the necessary end said an apostle in speaking upon this subject the jews require a sign and the greeks seek after wisdom but we preach christ crucified unto the jews a stumbling-block and unto the greeks foolishness but to them who are called both jews and greeks christ the power of god and the wisdom of god the jews while they required a sign did not perceive that miracles in themselves were not adapted to produce affection and the greeks while they sought after wisdom did not perceive that all the wisdom of the gentiles would never work love in the heart but the apostle preached christ crucified an exhibition of self-denial of suffering and of self-sacrificing love and mercy endured in behalf of men which when received by faith became the power of god and the wisdom of god to produce love and obedience in the human soul paul understood the efficacy of the cross he looked to calvary and beheld christ crucified as the sun of the gospel system not as the moon reflecting cold and borrowed rays but as the sun of righteousness glowing with radiant mercy and pouring warm beams of life and love into the open bosom of the believer four analogy between the moral and physical laws of the universe the laws which govern physical nature are analogous to those which the gospel introduces into the spiritual world the earth is held to the sun by the power of attraction and performs regularly its circuit around the central sustaining luminary maintaining at the same time its equal relations with its sister planets but the moral system upon the earth is a chaos of derangement the attraction of affection which holds the soul to god has been broken and the soul of man actuated by selfishness revolving upon its own centre only jars in its course with its fellow spirits and crosses their orbits and the whole system of the spiritual world upon earth revolves in disorder the orbs wandering and rolling away from that centre of moral life and power which alone could hold them in harmonious and happy motion into the midst of this chaos of disordered spirits god the son of the spiritual world came down he shed light upon the moral darkness and by coming near like the approaches of a mighty magnet the attraction of his mercy as manifested in christ crucified became so powerful that many spirits rolling away into darkness and destruction felt the efficacy and were drawn back and caused to move again in their regular orbits around the light and life and love of the spiritual system if free agency could be predicated of the bodies of the solar system 
the great law which governs their movements might be expressed thus thou shalt attract the sun with all thy might and thy sister planets as thyself the same expression gives the great law of the spiritual world thou shalt love the lord with all thy soul and thy neighbor as thyself now if a planet had broken away from its orbit it would have a tendency to fly off for ever and it never could be restored unless the sun the great centre of attraction could in some way follow it in its wanderings and thus by the increased power of his attraction as he approached nearer to the fallen planet attach it to himself and then draw it back again to its original orbit so with the human spirit its affections were alienated from god the centre of spiritual attraction and they could never have been restored unless god had approached and by the increased power of his mercy as manifested in the self-denial sufferings and death of christ united man again to himself by the power of affection that he might thus draw him up from his misery and sin to revolve around him in harmony and love for ever if this earth had by some means broken away from the sun there would be no way possible of recovering it again to its place in the system but that which has been mentioned that the sun should leave his central position and approach the wandering orb and thus by the increased power of his attraction draw back the earth to its original position but the sun could not thus leave the centre of the system without drawing all the other planets from their orbits by the movement to recover the lost one the relations of the system would be broken up and the whole solar economy sacrificed if the universal and equal law of gravitation was infringed by the sun changing his position and his relations in the system further the established laws of the physical universe would render it impossible that any other planet should be the instrument of recovering the earth to the sun if another planet should approach the earth while thus wandering the increased power of attraction would cause the two globes to revolve around each other or if the approaching planet was of greater magnitude the earth would revolve as a satellite around it but this would not be to restore the earth to its place in the system nor to its movement around the sun but to fix it in a wrong position and a wrong movement and thus alienate it forever from the central source of light and heat it follows therefore that in accordance with the established laws of the solar system the earth could never be recovered but would fly off forever or be broken into asteroids there would therefore be no way possible for the recovery of the earth unless god should adopt an expedient unknown to the physical laws of the universe this all who believe that god is almighty and himself the author of those laws will allow that he might do that expedient must not destroy the great laws of the system upon which the safety of all its parts depend but an augmented force of attraction must be thrown upon the earth from the sun itself which would be sufficient to check the force of its departing momentum and gradually draw it back to its place if a portion of the magnetic power of the sun could be thrown into the earth an adhesion would take place between it and the earth and then after the cord was fastened if that body of attractive matter could ascend again to the body of the sun the earth would receive the returning impulse 
and a new and peculiar influence would be created to draw it back to its allegiance to the sun. If, as has been said, the power came from any other body but the sun itself, or attracted towards any other body, the earth would lose its place in the system for ever. Footnote. These illustrations are not to be applied to the mode of existence or subsistence in the Godhead, but as God is the author of both the physical and moral laws, and as the attraction of gravitation in physics corresponds with the attraction of affection in morals, an analogy of what would be necessary under one is taken to what was accomplished by Christ under the other. End of footnote. So in the moral world, God's relations to the moral universe must be sustained. The infinite justice and holiness of the divine law must not be compromised. The end to be gained is, to draw man, as a revolted sinner, back to God, while the integrity of God's moral government is maintained. Now affection is the attraction of the moral universe, and, in accordance with the foregoing deduction, to reclaim alienated man to God would be impossible, unless there should be a manifestation of the Godhead in the world, to attract to himself man's estranged affections, and then, after the affinity was fastened by faith, by his ascending again to the bosom of the deity, mankind would thus be gradually drawn back to allegiance to Jehovah. End of section 14